Welcome to Reader's Digress, the podcast where we read nonfiction books so that you don't have to, unless you want to. My name is Kate. And I'm Molly. And today I'm going to be telling Kate about a book of essays by Samantha Irby titled We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. I'm so excited for this. She's so funny. (laughs) Yeah, so Kate said she's read another book by Samantha, so uh, she's familiar with Irby's work, but not this book specifically. And it's really fun. So I'm going to start with a little, um, what's that called? Summary. (laughs) And then I'm going to get into, I'm going to focus on just one of the essays so we can really kind of go through it. Love. Yeah. And it's going to be really fun. So (laughs) I'm going to start with this summary. So We Are Never Meeting in Real Life is a collection of essays by Samantha Irby She is a hilarious and brutally honest writer known for her raw, unapologetic, and often raunchy storytelling. (laughs) In this book, she shares her unique perspective on a wide range of topics, including love, relationships, family, race, health, and pop culture. Irby's essays are deeply personal and explore her experiences as a queer Black woman navigating life in modern America. She delves into her struggles with mental health, her failed attempts at dating and finding love, and her complicated relationship with her body. Been there. Uh, (laughs) Relatable content. Incoming. (laughs) She also writes candidly about her dysfunctional family. Also relatable. And her childhood growing growing up poor and the challenges of being a caregiver for her ailing parents. Despite dealing with heavy subjects, Irby's writing is laced with humor, making the book both poignant and laugh-out-loud funny. She uses her self-deprecating humor to cope with difficult situations, and her unique blend of vulnerability and sarcasm creates a relatable and compelling voice. So, it was very funny and very touching, Mm. I think is how I'd say. Wonderful. Well, I can't wait to hear more. Yes. Um, Okay, so today I'm going to tell you about one of her essays in the book called A Blues for Fred, in which she details the rise and fall of a situationship. And for those of you who are not familiar, a situationship is a now colloquial term that describes like a a relationship that was never quite a relationship, that was never like fully defined or never got off the ground and Mm -hmm. maybe like kind of dragged on for a long time beyond what it should have. Um, But in this kind of situationship, it's like the one where the person you're romantically involved with is actually a really good human being and you can see potential with them and they just don't see the same things in you. So though they Mm. hurt you, it's hard to actually blame them for anything because, you know, that's sometimes just what happens. Yeah, Um, they just like weren't feeling it as much as you. Yeah. Or it's like they had nothing against you. They just didn't have the same vision of the future that you had Mm, or they just were faster to accept that your like priorities or goals were different and sure you know so like they hurt you and you feel angry about it but and that's very real but it's lacking a certain kind of like righteous satisfaction because you know that it's like okay for people to just have different feelings yeah yeah there's a part of you that like understands that they chose this choice 
And so that part of you doesn't allow the rest of you to be fully angry because it's like, well, yes. I understand why they did this. <laughs> yes. And you you know that reasonably they had every right to just not have the same feelings you did. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's messy, complicated thing where you are reasonable enough to realize that another person has the right to not reciprocate your feelings. But at the same time, you sort of resent them for it and feel justified in acting a little crazy about it. (laughs) Because Mm -hmm. maybe in some ways they took advantage of you. And maybe in other possibly more real ways, they didn't (laughs) at all. (laughs) And that's confusing and weirdly open-ended. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's kind of setting the scene. That's Mm -hmm. what's happening here. And hold on. Let me take a sip of water. (laughs) Rehydrate. Hydration is important. Like, are you, have you been running a fucking marathon? No, you've been reading <laughs> one paragraph. So what is going on? <laughs> you've been talking for T minus five minutes. <laughs> um, okay, so but let's start this off with a question, Kate. Okay. Can you give us just generally your thoughts or feelings on the mm-hmm. concept of dating? Okay. Uh, just the most general question yeah, in the like, world. <laughs> starting it off super broad okay all right wonderful uh well i am in a more unique situation i think than most adults which Mm -hmm. is that i have never really dated uh i had like a high school boyfriend and you know whatever a couple Mm -hmm. of like situationships so to say (laughs) Uh um And then I met my husband when we were 19. So, and and I have been with him since. Mm -hmm. So my experience with dating is not so much as varied as most adults experience. So it is pretty different than what other people understand dating to be. So I don't know. My feelings about it are that it seems really hard. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems very difficult to date. It also seems like it can be exciting and fun, but that it sort of depends on what your expectations are Mm -hmm. as someone Mm -hmm. who's dating. And I have a a lot of friends that have uh, spanned the spectrum of what they want out of a dating experience. So uh, I've watched people be like totally fine with a lot of casual dating uh, and be like offended at the prospect that someone would want more commitment. (laughs) And I've had friends that are super looking for commitment and been very disappointed when they don't get that from the person they're dating. So it's interesting as a voyeur into the space Mm -hmm. (laughs) and watching friends go through that full spectrum. Uh, But it seems like it it very much depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. And kind of like how you go into it. Um, well, well, I was like dating a lot, which was not very fun in for me personally. Um, <laughs> I tried to remind myself that like, instead of just like being like, it is what it is, you know, when something bad would happen, I would just kind of say instead, it is what you make of it. Cause I just didn't want my like, feelings of like resentment or pessimism to color everything Mm -hmm. and I would try to go into dates because I was using a dating app which is just like so hellish for the most part it can be fun (laughs) but not like so much for a soft like sensitive baby like me 
who longed <laughs> deeply for commitment. Like that's a recipe for disaster. Um, but I would just try to go into these dates where you like really have no idea how it's going to go. Like it could be like just the not even scary bad, which it can be, but it can just be like a fucking waste of time. Yeah. So I would try to like pick places that I liked or like there was this one time I was meeting someone at like a kind of a beach park where we could watch the sunset Mm-hmm. And there's always like the possibility that they won't show up. And so I went to a grocery store beforehand and got uh, cans of wine. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, whether this person comes or not, I'm going to sit and watch the sunset and get drunk. So yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> so <laughs> I will be getting something out of this, even if it's yeah. not the something I asked for. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I just would try to like go in with it. Kind of like, I'm going to have a fun time with this because I like I made it that way mm-hmm. regardless of this person. So I felt like that sometimes helped. Okay. Anyway, so now we've set the scene and <laughs> let me open my book. I feel like I'm going to be making a lot of page noises. So apologies, everyone. I'm going to read like a lot of different sections, maybe so many that <laughs> they're going to be like, excuse me, you read the essay, but that's not <laughs> what I'm going to do. I'm just going to read most of it. Um, No, not even, Um, but I, I'm going to read parts this podcast has often just become an audiobook, and I think that's fine. That is fine, okay? You're welcome that you didn't have to read Spare Yourself, <laughs> okay? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so Samantha describes Fred as an art lover with an intelligent sense of humor. A rare breed, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and they met in, like, 2012-ish, and I can't really, I can't confirm how they met, but it doesn't matter. And she had begun to imagine what it might be like to actually be with this person for real. You know, that part Mm -hmm. of an early relationship where you're starting to picture things and then your brain is like, danger, danger, don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read this quote. It says, if you are a certain type of sap, this is one of those moments, you know, the ones in which you relax long enough to think that this might actually be real and cool and maybe start thinking about accidentally leaving some allergy meds and an old toothbrush in a dude's bathroom. I had already <laughs> forgotten a lip balm and my emergency glasses on the bedside table and hidden a case of fancy bottled water in a kitchen cabinet. But visions of five inches of available space in his underwear drawer had begun dancing through my head, and I could not get them to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you personally have been there, Kate, but I certainly have. And it's a very vulnerable place to be, where you're beginning to, like, (laughs) imagine what might be with this person, but also know that no one has said one thing about it yet. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it is just imaginary. Um, So that's how she's kind of in this place with this person. It's going very well. He's very Mm -hmm. great. And not that like sheen of greatness that rubs off very quickly, but the Mm -hmm. kind of greatness that just gets better the more you know the person to the point that you're like, actually, yes, I can believe in this greatness. This person really is great. Yeah. Yeah. I am finding out that I actually like you as a person and not as a concept. And that's really exciting. Yes. And every time I say something and it's like one of those moments where your response could be like, Oh, red flag. It's not a red flag. It's a yeah, green flag. Yeah. And you're so just being, being encouraged. Great. Yes. 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 Okay. So I, then I wrote, <laughs> I think what she is describing so perfectly throughout this essay is the way that so much of early love can happen inside your own head. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you get lucky and it is happening inside the other person's head as well. But sometimes mm-hmm. you don't. 
and you realize you had a whole future in mind and maybe they did too, but you were not a part of that future. (laughs) Mm. Okay. So that is how she's setting up things, but she doesn't get into like the downfall right away. So she's going to describe Fred to you a little bit. Okay. And as I have stated, Fred is a catch of a guy. He has all these great things about him, not to mention that he has a whole house. Incredible. Incredible. Where do they live? Is this... Is that I think it, it is in Chicago. So Chicago. Okay. It's not just a whole house anywhere. It is a whole house in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. What is a part of that that is especially a green flag is that mm-hmm. for many millennials, knowing that someone can buy a house in a place where it's especially difficult to buy a house mm-hmm. is like, oh, it's a sign that you're a grown up and stable and responsible enough to be able to get your life together enough to buy a house in a very expensive city, right? It's not just like, oh, yeah, you bought a house in a place where most people could buy a house, you know? Yeah, totally. And I think the thing that's like tricky with dating and in all things, but like, especially dating is that it, the house is like a really good sign, but it isn't everything. Like someone can own a house and have like a stable income and be like, really bad in other ways. Yeah, but it's like, it's like one really important piece of a very like complicated puzzle. Mm-hmm. And so when that happens, it's like, oh my God, wait, this could be amazing. And yeah. then like more things just keep happening that like this person is amazing. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is crazy. This person has a whole house and they're not a bad person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So this actually reminds me of when I started becoming friends with uh, one of my current friends and I found out that she, so we were like getting coffee and she offered to drive me home and uh, was revealed that she drives a Tesla. And it was like one of those signs that I felt like a lot of people could have brain patterns either way of like, oh, this person Mm -hmm. drives a Tesla. They're very like put together or Mm -hmm. this person drives a Tesla. Maybe they worship Elon Musk and which could be like a sign of like a different thing that you may or may not be into. (laughs) And like, I think we do that all the time about people of like Mm -hmm. apply these like patterns and we're going one way or the other. And with every new piece of information, we can start to like slot them into this was a good sign or this was a bad sign. And uh, we get in the car and my friend was like, just so you know, I don't like Elon Musk. And I do feel like I need to (laughs) announce that every time (laughs) that someone gets in my Tesla. And I was like, okay, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) And then we started talking about how much of a douche he is. But it's funny because like, I think a lot of times we preemptively do that ourselves of like people who are getting to know us kind of announce like, this is what this should signal to you and not this other thing that I definitely don't want it to signal to you. And that's important to me because I don't want you to think I'm the kind of person that worships Elon Musk. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, I totally agree. And I feel like a house is like a pretty neutral signal. Like I feel like I've never met someone and found out that they owned a house and been like, ooh, that's a bad sign, you know, or like could be a bad sign. (laughs) But there's so many things like that that you encounter in an early relationship where you're like, okay, time will tell. Time will yeah, tell here yeah, about yeah. what like, which okay, one of I'm, those things this is. <laughs> I'm slotting that away into my folder of information and mm-hmm. I will bring it back up when it seems applicable. <laughs> yes, yes. And decide like what it means when I know what it means. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So, okay. But Fred, he has a house. It's okay, amazing. Good for Fred. And and she writes, anyway, Fred had a kitchen, and in that kitchen was a juicer and a fruit bowl that held seven perfectly ripened mangoes. I remember being struck by a half-empty bottle of Dawn propping up a sponge on the sink and thinking to myself how amazing it was that this dude who used dishes <laughs> sorry, sorry. Amazing it was that this was a dude who used dishes and then washed them. <laughs> She goes, listen, I don't want you to think I was messing around with men who couldn't tie their own shoes or whatever, but a lot of dudes in their 30s don't have proper washcloths or fresh produce. So when I crossed the threshold of this actual house and didn't immediately trip over 17 barbells and a rat king of video game controller cords, I kind of (laughs) lost my shit a little bit. It's really true. It's very sad to me that there are so many men out there who can't take care of their bodies and dwellings because Mm -hmm. those are things that humans have and need to have and need to take care of. Like, why is it that there are so many 30-year-old men out there that can't figure out when or how often to groom themselves? Yeah. What is going on there? Have we really failed men that and they failed themselves that significantly like yes. i don't even it's so wild to me because i mean that's wild to me too because i feel like i can understand i mean i can't understand in some ways but i can understand a man who doesn't know how to keep his space clean if he had a mother or a woman in his life who always cleaned yeah. for him but if it's your fucking body what is going on there. Yeah, I'm just going to come out and say it. Number one turnoff to me in all of the world is that you can't keep your body clean. That's so disgusting to me. (laughs) And it should be for most people, I think. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. That is like a sign, like it goes against our instincts of survival. Yeah, yeah. It should if it doesn't. (laughs) Yes. If it doesn't, Um, reassess your understanding of survival. (laughs) Yeah. But you're right, like, the, the there are so many men out there that are our age who are not understanding how to take care of their bodies and their homes that I will just say personally, I have excused some really, like, misalignment in a relationship because the person owned a house and was able to, like, do things for himself <laughs> that I was just like, this is amazing. That No one could ever be better than this person who is treating me like I don't exist because he knows how to vacuum. Which is, like, truly important, but not more important than... Than treating you like a human. (laughs) So I I just want it to be clear how incredibly potent that is. How rampant it is that men don't know how to vacuum. And if you are trying to make yourself more appealing as a potential partner, learn how to vacuum. It will work. (laughs) Yes. Also, like, yeah, there's just, there are so many things that... That's why, to me, dating seems so hard because it's like, well, you may find somebody who, like, has your sense of humor, and that's awesome. Mm -hmm. But then you find out that they have no clean clothes and that they just buy new underwear packs when they need clean underwear. And then it's like, well, that really blows because I was really digging you in terms of our humor (laughs) matching. And then I found out that you can't wash your underwear. And now I feel so grossed out and repulsed that I have to go. I'm legally obligated to go now. And that's a big, that's a bummer. Like (laughs) it is a bummer. I, okay. This is reminding me of an experience I had once while dating a person. It was like more casual. We were not like, Certainly no labels or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, a situationship, been, like, if you will. 
if you will. <laughs> uh, but I'd been in his apartment several times. And the first time I went over there, like I noticed, this is so like, this is so too much. The, his toilet was very weird and that it had oh like God, a very, very, <laughs> very deep, like, I, I don't know, the basin was very deep. And the, there, I noticed that it was like discolored at the bottom, but it's like, oh, a hotel it's an apartment building and sure. there's like no who knows what the fuck has gone on in this apartment building yeah like maybe it's it was rust. newer yeah it was a newer building so i really should have known but i didn't think that much of it because his like place was not filthy it was just like you know pretty normal mm-hmm. and then once we went to ikea together and i noticed that he bought a toilet brush and i was like huh so and you the- you didn't previously have a toilet brush, or are you replacing the toilet brush? And this is a piece yeah. of information that you're like could go either way. I don't exactly. know. It's one of I'm those still open. Like, I'm still open. Okay. Noticing, noticing. Yeah. And then the next in time taking I was information, place, <laughs> I noticed that the toilet was not discolored anymore, and I was just like, no, oh, no, no, this is so bad. No. This is so bad because I I want to emphasize how discolored it was like it was it was not like a little bit it was so discolored anyway i it's also so wild because that means that he did not either care or did not think to himself that it was something that he should have in his own environment until it dawned on him that someone else might be judging him for it or or might care about it and it's like that is also like kind of sad to me that you don't think that you deserve a clean space unless a woman inhabits it and it's like no you should have a clean space because you inhabit it because you're a human being that needs to live in a place that is like reasonably clean yes Absolutely. Which includes using a toilet brush once a month or whatever. Like, that is the bare yeah. minimum that you can do. <laughs> you are required to clean your toilet. End of story. It's literally one of the dirtiest places in our homes. Ugh. The fact that you think you wouldn't have to clean that, of all things, is like, why, oh, though? It's horrible. It's horrible. Um, okay, so dating right, is... On. Rough, <laughs> and as it, it turns out, pretty gross. <laughs> yeah. It always has been. It always will be, <clears throat> and it's tough at every age. Like mm-hmm. you know, doesn't matter how old you are, it's tough. But certain ages, I think, present a unique sort of challenge and complexity. Mm-hmm. So my next question for you, Kate, mm-hmm. is: What age would you say is the hardest to date at? And I'm going to give you three options. This is multiple choice. Yes. So okay. 16, 35, or 65. And there isn't a right answer. I'm just curious what you think. Like for you, what do you think would be the hardest to navigate dating at one of those ages? You know, I think they all are difficult because they present different difficulties, right? Like at the mm-hmm. age of 16, when you're dating, no one is mature and you haven't worked out mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. own brain chemistry to figure out who you are or who you should be in a relationship. And I think that's actually the age where the most people experience a jealous partner, uh, an abusive partner, or some sort of like gaslighting and like, I don't know, latent, but sometimes 
blatant like sexism Mm -hmm. or racism or things like that because people have not like matured in any way and they most often have not worked on themselves so in some ways like emotionally it feels like that is a very difficult time to date yeah um on the flip side of that at 65 I think it's difficult to date because you have to share your entire life with somebody. Yeah. And I think starting over can be very scary. Um, And you also, at 16, like, not that many things have happened to you because you are, have only lived 16 years. When you've lived 65 years, a lot of things have happened to you that you need to bring someone in on. And the process of doing that and, like, slowly being an archaeologist and uncovering your partner's past seems like it would be very hard. Um, Mm -hmm. but the positive being that like, you likely don't have young children. And so Mm -hmm. you're not like, it's, you're on your own in terms of being a person at 16 or at 65, where the person you date, the repercussions are only for you. And like you're, it's, you're kind of alone in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think 35 is difficult because you are somebody who has had some things happen to you in the past. You may mm-hmm. have a dependent for whom, like, you're, who you're dating matters a whole heck of a lot because you are exposing maybe a child, maybe you are taking care of, like, parents, whatever. Um, and that seems very difficult. It also is one of those things where I think there's a lot more societal pressure to have, like, settled down at that point in your life or to want to settle down at that point in your life. And so people expect more out of your dating life for it to, like, turn into something more, even if that's not something you ever wanted and aren't looking for at all. But, like, I think in terms of human pressure, that piece is, like, very prevalent. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Plus, like... Not that this isn't the case at 65, it's just like different, but at 35, I feel like a lot of people have begun around you. I mean, your friends have begun to settle down and mm-hmm. and meet their long-term partners and maybe have kids and do those types of things that even if you don't necessarily want them, they're quote unquote normal to do. And you can feel lonely in your experience if you don't have those things. Mm-hmm. Again, not necessarily because you want them to, but simply because the people in your life don't relate to you in the same way that they used to. Or yeah. like you said, maybe they're putting that pressure of like, when are you going to meet somebody? Which is like, I don't fucking know, <laughs> bitch. Like, <laughs> shut up. That's the worst question to ask someone. <laughs> How would anyone know? I don't even know. What, do yeah, you, what is your response supposed so to be to that? But also it's yeah. one of those things where it's like, I think it's interesting because in some ways, like ages 25 through whatever, 35, 40, um, but probably more through like 25 to 35, that decade is the first time Mm -hmm. for most people that you are waging a course in your life that may be distinct from your peers, because up Mm -hmm. until that time, a lot of people have very similar lives. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it it really starts to like break apart. And for the first time you have friends that don't have lives that are similar to yours. And I think in a lot of ways that 
going through that process, whether it was because you were the first to have kids or because you don't have kids at 35 Mm -hmm. or you aren't married or whatever, like, I think Mm -hmm. that process can be really difficult for most people because it's like, oh, right, like, things aren't the same in that we're all going through the same thing at the same time anymore, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't have the, like, forced closeness of college or, you know, that, like, young post-college era that some people experience where they're still like living maybe with a lot of roommates or something like that Mm -hmm. so I feel like that emphasizes the like the fracturing that can happen at that time for people yeah which seems like it's ripe for that like feelings of loneliness that you were talking about um so she writes that she didn't see the end coming not that she was surprised because she had known like maybe subconsciously or consciously that they were mismatched in some ways, but just that she thought there was more time for them. Um, But their goals and the reality of their lives were not totally in sync. And let me find this next quote. Okay. So she says, I got dumped pretty much because I cannot have a baby. I could feel every bit of exposed upper arm fat catch a chill in that fancy restaurant he'd suggested. And I instinctively bent my arms and tucked my elbows into my sides for protection. As Fred tried to find a nice way to tell me that his imaginary future children were more important than what I thought was a really special thing we had going. An hour before that, we'd been strolling arm in arm through the Liechtenstein And my heart was still full of all those people and colors and the fact that I was finally having sex with a person who had a membership to the goddamn Art Institute. And now I was being broken up with over a $30 pasta in a grossly unflattering cap-sleeved shirt. (laughs) (laughs) Who are cap-sleeves for? I mean... I don't know. I think it's just exclusively petite people. Is that fair? Yes. I think so. You have to have really bony shoulders. Yeah, and... Sometimes I don't like them on anyone, regardless of body shape. I don't really like them, period. Yeah. I'm going to be but brave was, and just say that. I, <laughs> you heard it here first, I hate folks. cap sleeves. Cap sleeves are out. Yeah. I was telling my boyfriend about that specific section, and I, when I read that, I was just like, wow, the amount of times that I have been in a situation that felt like vulnerable and I was being rejected and I could like sense a part of my body that I was Mm. like self-conscious about like she describes where she could feel the air on her arm fat oh my god I was like that gave me chills it was Mm -hmm. so relatable yeah and the way you just like shrink down and think about like why the fuck did I wear this shirt you know yeah Mm. Or, or you like you start to be like I I can physically feel where in my body I'm feeling this tension or anxiety Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. uh my sadness of being rejected or like whatever it is yeah um I had a therapist who would often ask like I would I would say something about like I'm mad or whatever today Mm -hmm. and and she would be like okay and what does that look like like where do you feel that (laughs) which was not like I don't know I actually didn't feel like that question was all that helpful to be honest Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but uh, it is interesting that whenever you're feeling something, you can almost always like pinpoint where you're feeling it, you know, like it mm-hmm. may be in the pit of your stomach. It may be like, yeah. oh, I'm, I'm feeling vulnerable. So I'm like literally, uh, retracting my arms to my sides to protect yeah. my vulnerable spots, you know, or yeah. like, I'm like, uh, I don't know. It's almost like going into a shell as like a turtle, mm-hmm. you know, it's just like, yes. I'm, I'm just going to protect myself because I feel the knife coming, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My therapist also 
asked that question a lot. We have done like a lot of like getting back into the body work, which is supposed mm-hmm. to help with trauma. Ugh, who knows if it's true? Um, but I <laughs> allegedly, <did> also- <laughs> allegedly, <laughs> I, I did also start paying more attention to the way I feel feelings in my body, mm-hmm. and I noticed like specifically when I feel ashamed or like that kind of rejection shame that you feel mm-hmm. it, it does this thing where it kind of like rolls through my body and then like pools in the bottom of my feet it's this like roller coaster mm-hmm. feeling and so I it was actually helpful for me because sometimes I would notice the sensation and that would help me realize that I was feeling like shame over something interesting so it like so, helped you articulate the feeling by like reverse engineering this is the thing that's happening to me yeah because that i don't have it with every emotion but that physical sensation is like very consistent and it was Mm -hmm. very frequent for a while yeah and so it i don't know it just kind of tipped me off to like how often i was feeling shame over like sadness that i had or like Mm -hmm. whatever experience and i don't know that that was like I don't know, groundbreaking or anything, but it was an interesting thing to start noticing in the whole process of trying to like get over stuff. Yeah, for sure. I I think it's also like can be helpful if you feel like, and you may or may not be in this camp, but just in general, I think this happens to women a lot where Mm -hmm. you feel like someone has told you not to feel a certain way or that you can't feel a certain way. And so there's almost like a reluctance to identify something as sadness or as anger because you're not supposed to be angry or sad or whatever the thing is. And so in some ways, I do think that that question can be helpful in that way. But um, when I've already identified, like, I am angry, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like it's a helpful question to be like, and where are you angry? It's like, fucking everywhere. Shut up. (laughs) Yeah. No, sometimes my therapist will ask me that. And I'm just like, I don't know. And I don't know how to explain it. And I don't want to even bother thinking about it. So let's move on, shall we? (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Um, so that was me derailing the conversation. So, yes, I I do like this passage a lot, though, because I've been thinking about that piece of the decision to have children or not, which mm -hmm, is that mm -hmm. you are, in essence, choosing a relationship that doesn't exist yet over all the Mm -hmm. relationships that you currently have. Because, like – yeah that's what happens. You have to prioritize those kids when you have them in order to have the relationship you want to have. Right. And And keep them alive. (laughs) Yeah. But it's, I think, a very difficult choice to make to say like, no, I want to prioritize something that doesn't exist to me yet. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of like faith and like bravery in making that choice, certainly. But I personally am finding it difficult to grapple with in terms of like, oh, right. I'm choosing something that doesn't exist to me yet over things mm-hmm. that do exist to me today, you know? Yeah. yeah. So it's totally. interesting the way she she worded that. Um, and and yeah. like the conversation that they're having is like, you're choosing this thing, this life that doesn't exist for you yet over this thing that's good right now happening. Yeah. Because you think that it, it will be better and you have faith that that will be better for you. And who knows? Like, it, I, I'm sure that man made the right choice for himself. And like, that's accurate and he is happier with that life but it is it always really interesting to watch people do that I think yeah and it gives like more I don't know if credibility is the right word but that feeling of like resentment or anger or hurt it 
it feels a little bit more valid because it's like, this is real right now. And you agree that it's good. It just wasn't as good as something you think you could have in the future. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're not even right about that. Like maybe you yeah. can meet someone who can like have a kid, but they might not be as good as me. Right. And I mean, if that is what you want more then obviously that's what you should do. But that I can totally feel the resentment myself just at the whole situation of like, yeah, okay, you really think that imaginary thing that might not even happen is better than what you have right in front of you? Like, mm-hmm. ugh, fuck you then, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, for sure. But, but I, I like that okay. passage. Very interesting. Yeah, I thought it was very well put. Okay, so moving into her kind of reflections on the breakup and how she like dealt with it. She describes how it's like so much worse when a good guy dumps you than when a guy who you knew was shitty and not worth it the whole time dumps you. Mm. So uh, she says, I mourned that relationship with Fred. I mourned it hard. We wrote a eulogy, had a funeral, shed a few tears, put flowers on its grave. When you break up with an asshole, it's easy just to set fire to that, to the shit and move on. But no one talks to you about ending a relationship that never sucked and ended kind of amicably with your homie whom you still love to a degree and for whom you sort of want the best. No, you actually want the best. You want him to be prosperous and happy, not more prosperous or happy than you are for sure, or all up in your face with it, (laughs) but you aren't actively wishing for homeboy to wind up homeless or like hit by a city bus. So I think she's doing like a really good job of that tension between like resenting someone and kind of wanting something bad to happen to them, but not at all wanting something bad to happen to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wanting them to be happy, but just not any more happy than you, God forbid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd, like, want them to have, like, a series of, like, kind of annoying days, but you don't want anything bad to actually happen to them because yeah. then you would legitimately feel bad because you still care about them. Uh, yeah. But it's also, like, you have to get that resentment out in some way. Like, you have to yeah. do something with that resentment and, like, process it in some way. And otherwise, it just, like, sits there and... simmers and then it feels worse yeah totally and i mean i don't know you'd have to be so so transcendent to genuinely be like i totally understand and your happiness is important for you and we'll both be okay without each other it's like that's basically impossible okay so unless you like like, weren't that into the relationship either in which case like yeah okay then that's pretty easy because you were planning on ending it too but to have something that you think is really good going that you'd like to see go on for a long time and then have it be broken is like yeah that fucking blows (laughs) yeah and i think those of us who like are trying to have good relationships and be good people, whatever that means can get to a point where we're beyond it and forgive the person and understand that like it was best, it was best for them to be Mm -hmm. honest and to like do what they needed to do for themselves. But I think it's totally normal for that to take a while, maybe a long, long time to get there depending on like the depth of the relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, But so she describes that um, she decided the only way that she could get over it was to scrub her social feeds of him. So she just like, couldn't, (laughs) she couldn't see him like doing fun things or going places with people who weren't her. Yeah. And so it was like with a little like tinge of spite, but only a little bit, she deleted him from her Facebook and other like platforms. And then she, I think describes not replying to his emails. Mm -hmm. And I was like, LOL emails. Can you imagine like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mailing someone. Um, Your love letter via email. Yeah. This was like a little while ago. Um, But 
of course, as is usually the case in these situations, after she'd had enough time to lick her wounds, I think it was maybe a couple of years even, she realized that she really missed her friend. And so she decided to reach back out. And um, she just says, I dipped a toe in the water and almost got frostbite. In six months, I'd gone from heartbroken baby animal to Facebook deleter and blocker. <laughs> and the response I received to my I'm ready to be friends again email was terse and cold and suspicious. Because in Fred's mind, we still could have been friends all along. He didn't not love me. I didn't not love him. We just weren't each other's person. But reasonable though it may have been, the talk had left me touchy and defensive, so I let his emails and texts go unanswered while I licked my never-gonna-spend-the-morning-cuddled-at-Hyde-Park-Library-together wounds. Um, there was something I was going to say. Oh, I, I was just going to say on a personal note, it's very difficult for me. I don't know that anyone has ever said this when they broke up with me, but like, if anyone ever said, <clears throat> we're just not each other's person, I would have lit them on fire right then and there. <laughs> Just don't fucking say that. Don't you fucking dare. I can't stomach it. Like each other's person makes me feel nauseated on a good day. But then when you're like breaking up with me to say it, no, never again. Yeah. I speak to you. We've also talked about this on the podcast, but I don't really believe in that. So the concept that you're like yeah. not someone's person, it's like, no, there are probably multiple people out there for all of us. It just depended yeah. on whether you met at the right time and whether right. you wanted to put in the effort. So that to me is sort of like a, okay, whatever. I, 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 it, yeah. I would rather have someone say like, we just don't have chemistry if that's how you feel or like, yeah. you know, or like our personalities are- don't mesh well together or whatever you're trying to say. But yeah. to say you're not the one for me is so dramatic. It is. And I also think what makes me feel so angry about it is that it implies this like higher wisdom than I have of like, I know that you're great, but I just want you to know we're not each other's person. And it's just like, well, according to you, dumbass, like, which is like, that's the only person it actually matters for. But it just makes me feel so angry. Like, yeah, yeah. Know. Like, don't lecture Clearly. me about who my person should be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing. It's like, yeah. well, I don't know. It's It makes me so upset. Um, but also but now anyway. I'm realizing that you're not my person because you are a dumbass. So yeah. And you just said here the we stupidest are. thing. Anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> okay, so the essay ends with Samantha and Frank meeting up again at one of uh, their favorite spots and reconnecting despite the awkwardness of going back to just friends with someone who has had their tongue down your throat, not to mention other places. <laughs> um, and she says, I suggested Ocheval for dinner because that place is loud and sexy and dark, and I knew that Fred would pay for however many $14 cocktails I ordered, plus maybe a cheeseburger. I made sure to wear basic dishwater gray friend clothes and my house glasses. I probably didn't even wear a deodorant because this was a friend meeting between friends. When he walked in, I was flooded with relief. And when he bent to wrap his arms firmly around me, I nearly burst into tears. I'm not very often very good at exposing my innermost feelings. I am self-deprecating. I avoid tough conversations. I joke my way through uncomfortable emotional moments. But I stood in a corner of that restaurant and I poured out my soppy feelings and I listened to Fred pour out his and we started laying the groundwork for a friendship. And I'm not even going to front. I have never been able to navigate a post-relationship relationship with someone whose testicles have been in my mouth. But somehow this is working. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that is good for her. that. <laughs> and I have a final question for you, Kate, which is um, 
do you think if you had been in this situation kind of as an adult dating, which is like a miserable situation, meeting someone really good, having them reject you in a way that is like sensitive and painful, do you think you would have reached out again or would you have just have like let it fade away? I think it probably depends on how strong I felt the friendship could be because if I felt like there wasn't any reason to reach back out because either the person was not going to be into it, into being friends or because I didn't feel like the relationship was worth it, then I wouldn't. Uh, But if I felt like the Mm -hmm. relationship was like, oh, I really do miss that person. I haven't met anyone who made me laugh like them, or Mm -hmm. I haven't yet met anyone who I feel like I can enjoy X movie with as much as them or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Then I I do feel like I might be motivated to reach out. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it kind of depends on how strong I felt like that bond was. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I feel like for me, I have the tendency to be like kind of long suffering in my like crushes or my like love for people. So it would just have to be like, absolutely, I don't have any like simmering longing for the person because Mm -hmm. that's just a recipe for more pain to like pretend that you can just be friends with someone and not actually be able to just be friends with them. Yeah. Um, Or or like reopen it before you're fully healed. Right. Right. Yeah. So I just feel like that would take me so long that maybe by the time I was actually there, it would be, like, impossible to try to pick it back up, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Um, But very happy for them that they managed to. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have a little pop culture pairing. And then... Let's hear it. We're going to wrap this up. Okay, so uh, first one is kind of a wild card that I threw in here. It is actually a Twitter thread by someone named Kelsey Hughes. Okay. And the original tweet says, my BF boyfriend broke up with me this week. And I just want to hear happy stories of people who found their partner in their thirties. Thanks. And it has over 8,000, 8, 8,715 replies. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's all people like saying about how they met their partners later in life. Cute. It was like truly comforting to me at a time when I felt like a lot of existential dread over like never meeting someone. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just really loved it. And it made me feel like hope in the whole thing. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes in case anyone wants to read through that and read happy stories of meeting your person beyond the point when you're like, quote unquote, supposed to like in college or whatever. So it's possible. Don't worry. And then a podcast by a comedian named Nicole Byer called Why Won't You Date Me? And I actually have never listened to this podcast. So it's a little bit of a like, um, I don't know what I'm talking about referral, but (laughs) I do love Nicole Byer. And in the podcast, she talks about romance and super wild dating stories. And it's like with other comedians, friends and ex flings, which is fun. Like she'll I think that's why it got the name is because she would invite people that she used to date and then be like, why won't you date me? <laughs> Which is hilarious. Um, I'm so, not going to lie. Some of it is like I have I'm not a religious listener to that podcast. Mm-hmm. I have listened mm-hmm. to like a handful of episodes. The first when she was first getting started, there were a lot of like uncomfortable moments. Like it was Ooh. a little awkward, but I have heard that she's sort of it's sort of come into its own in mm-hmm. the later seasons. Mm-hmm. So I okay. I should revisit it and see like what's up, what she's doing on there. 
Yeah. Well, I never listened to it because while I while I was dating, hearing about people's dating experiences made me feel worse. Like it was, mm. it wasn't fun for me to hear about people's like terrible dates because it just made me feel more like demoralized. Yeah. Um, yeah. So nobody it, can do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just made me like I couldn't engage with that sort of thing. So I yeah. didn't. And now I don't know. I just feel like not that interested. <laughs> Yeah, I'm referring something I've never listened to and don't plan to, but I think it could be interesting. (laughs) But you should. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, that's what I've got. (laughs) What a wild ride. (laughs) Incredible. Well, thank you for taking us on that wild ride. Mm -hmm. Roller coaster, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. I loved it. And Samantha Irby is a very funny person. And I enjoyed uh, one of her other books that has... Uh, an essay in it called hello 911 that i think about daily oh my god the whole essay is just a series of lines where she starts it out saying hello 911 and then Uh. proceeds to say like hello 911 i spilled orange soda on my white shirt and i've tried to get it (laughs) out for three weeks now and now i'm feeling like i have to just throw the shirt away and then the next (laughs) one will be like hello 911 i stubbed my toe and now I'm just laying on the ground wondering if anyone will ever love me. Hello, 911. And she just like keeps going. These are all made up. But oh, uh, it's amazing. it's a really, really funny essay. And now I say that to myself sometimes when something like mildly inconvenient has happened to me. I'll just say, hello, 911. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually I've seen that on Twitter. So I wonder if her thing started it because I've. I do that a lot too, where like <laughs> we'll be like joking that the dogs like call 911 because they can't find their like chew toy or whatever. And it's like yeah. the same thing. Um, yeah. So that's uh, great. That's great. Anyway, that essay in particular, <laughs> I think is very, very funny. Oh, well, thank you so much for listening and uh, join us next time for more of our bullshit. 